Indeed, there is no one like our God. Amen? Amen. This week, I encourage you to drive down Garfield Avenue and wave at the Moffat House. It's the white one. And a couple houses down from that, wave at the Travis's house. It's the green one. But what I want you to see is not our house, uh, but actually they're building a new house on our street. It's pretty cool. Uh, a couple times a week, I take my family over there to go snoop around. Uh, we go in the basement. We go into their master closet, sit down in their walk-in shower uh, until they turn on, until they lock the doors. Uh, yeah, you know, we ooh and ah over this thing. It's pretty cool. Uh, now, if they had consulted me in designing it, I might have done a couple things differently, including a secret door from their three-car garage to the walk-in master closet. But they didn't consult me. In the 1200s, King Alfonso X of Spain said, had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. But God didn't consult Alfonso. Alfonso wasn't the first person to critique God, though, right? The, the wise Job repeatedly questioned God's wisdom being used to control the universe. Job would have offered our creator a tip or two for a better one run universe. And as wise as these men, Alfonso and Job, might have been, there is no suggestion that would have upped God's creation game. In fact, it's actually dangerous to think that we can question God and his ways and his methods and his wisdom that governs his creation. And when we are tempted to do the very same thing towards God, well, our goal is that this morning this would be a healthy warning for us and for our hearts. We are in the midst of our Faith Under Fire series where we're looking at the book of Job. We are in Job chapter 38. We have literally gone through 37 chapters of the book of Job. Remember, this is his riches to rags story where he has lost everything in a day not due to sin that he has committed. And he's had these conversations with his friends and they're trying to give him the reasons for why this is happening. And finally, we can say, good. They're done talking. And this morning, we get to hear from God who responds to Job and see exactly what he says. Now, our verse of the series is still happening. We have three weeks left to memorize this thing. This is Job 19, verse 25. It's actually a helpful aid for us in understanding the book of Job and, and where we can place our hope when our faith is under fire. So it's on our screens. Let's say that together, actually. Job 19.25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Let's pray for our time together. Lord, we ask that when we are tempted to give you hints about how you should run your creation, Father, we pray that we would actually be humbled when we remember all that you control. Things far beyond what we know or even recognize that you do. So, Father, we pray that you would use the book of Job to transform our hearts and our minds this morning. And we pray all this in Christ's name. 
Amen. Well, this week when I started uh, writing the sermon, uh, we were supposed to be going through chapters 38 and 39 and 40 and 41 and, the begin- and, and stop there. But we couldn't make it there. So we're actually just doing 38, 39 and the beginning of 40. Uh, and so, so that gives us a little bit more of chunk to, to, to look at this morning. And if there's one thing that I want us to walk away from that I think is the summary of chapters 38 and 39 and, and the first part of chapter 40, here's where I think the big idea is. God's power reveals a need for us to be humble. So we need to trust God's sovereignty in trials. God's power reveals a need for us to be humble. So we should trust God's sovereignty in trials. And we're going to look at this kind of just in three sections, chapter 38-ish and chapter 39, and then Job's humble response in the first five verses of chapter 40. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it with me. It's going to be incredibly helpful for you, whether it's on an app, whether it's a paper paper Bible, to be looking at the same passage that I'm looking at. It'll help you very much in in the sermon this morning. So, So in chapter 38, let's look at God's foundation. Back in chapter 10, verse 2, Job had wanted to speak to God face to face and so he could claim his innocence. And and so what happens here in chapter 38 is is quite remarkable. God speaks directly and personally to Job. Job finally gets his face to face with God, only it isn't what he expected. See, Job has been confused. He thought that his enemy was God, but Job got it wrong. If you remember chapter 31, verse 35, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job made the claim that he was looking for God, like a guy who needs to settle a score after school behind the dumpster. Right, So in Job 23, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. But what we see here in chapter 38 is that Job does not find God Almighty, but the Almighty finds and speaks to Job. The Lord answers Job out of a whirlwind, but instead of answering his questions, he has some questions of his own for Job. See, God isn't interested in letting Job know all the insights of God's knowledge. God is now showing the limits of Job's wisdom compared to God's wisdom. That's what we see here in chapters 38 and 39. It's really interesting that in the very first verse of chapter 38, we see the use of God's covenant name, Yahweh. Right, So every time we read in the Bible, in our English Bibles, the word LORD in all capital letters, that's a signal for us that they are using God's covenantal name. Yahweh is being used. And this is the first time since chapters 1 and 2. And this is really important because it ties the entire book together as a cohesive unit. And we see that God makes, the same God who makes a covenant with his people is the same God who is sovereign over the entire universe. There aren't two different gods. They are actually one and the same. This also helps us to recognize that Job is tied into its fulfillment in 
Jesus Christ. That Job's suffering and God's sovereignty finds completion and full understanding as we look at Jesus' suffering and God's sovereignty in that. So God speaks to Job out of a a common storm picture of power and fear. The, The whirlwind is the very storm Job's life has become, and it's within the storm of Job's life that God is speaking important words that puts his suffering into perspective that we too need to have. Difficult trials that you've been going through, difficult circumstances that you just can't get your head around, or deeply hurtful realities are met with words here from God that gives us a view of our suffering that will help us. In the midst of the storms of Job's life, God speaks to Job. God speaks when and to whom he chooses. He isn't humbled by Job asking him questions, but actually when God speaks, Job is humbled, and that should humble us this morning also. The very first words from God that we hear is this, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? The things that Job has been speaking brings darkness instead of giving light of clarity to his situation. Job is speaking, but he doesn't recognize what he's saying. He doesn't understand the implications. God alone has full knowledge of the universe. And so really, to every single one of God's questions, Job should be responding with, not I, but only you, Lord. It's interesting, God doesn't tell Job what happened in chapters 1 and 2. He didn't say, hey, you know, I was having this conversation with Satan, and here's kind of how all that went down. No, that's not even mentioned at all. And so in verses 4 through 7, it describes God as the architect who designed the universe, the surveyor who laid it all out in accordance to his wisdom and his design, and the builder who constructed it. The Bible continuously speaks of a creation properly and purposefully ordered. And had Job been part or present at that creation, well, he too would be wise. But of course he wasn't there. And that is why he speaks with words without knowledge, it says in verse 2. At verse 7, God's creation, the heavenly host are singing a joyful song at God's good creation. When the cosmos was set into place, those who understood what was happening rejoiced. They certainly didn't think God had messed up, though Job does. And it's here that we must think carefully about good and evil and how this fits into God's big picture. There is no outside of God's creation for evil to come from. The universe is and was the universe. So all that the angels sang about with joy included all that would transpire in history, including the fall and its repercussions. And so in verses 8 through 11, God describes his sovereignty that includes over the waters. Right, The ocean, the seas are a symbol of disaster and chaos and, and danger and evil. And God invites us to think about the sea in terms of God's sovereignty, that he has put a limit on the sea. 
So if you traveled to the East Coast ever and you see the waves crashing against the cliffs and how that mist just sprays up and then goes back down. You guys have seen it before, if nothing else, in pictures. Every time we see the waves crashing against the cliff, actually, that's a picture for us of how God has chosen where the restriction of the sea is in verse 11. We must not miss the reality that evil has a limit. There's a point where God says, this far and no further, even to the sufferings of Job. There is no evil force beyond God's authority. In fact, God's sovereignty is better than any alternative. It is worse if God couldn't stop the evil, because then we wouldn't know all of God's promises, whether they'd be fulfilled. We wouldn't know if Jesus' death and resurrection would conquer death and sin. God's sovereignty over every bit, including evil, is actually more comforting than any alternative. There is a place for evil in God's created order. Notice how in verses 8 through 11, the giving of the birth of the sea uh, is both a restraint and also the language of infant clothing and, and swaddling clothes suggests it's actually also protected by God. In some strange and, and wonderful way, even disorder has a place in God's order. And what we see is that ultimately, evil has a temporary timeline. Ultimately, evil is destroyed. That's what we see in verses 12 to 15. The wicked will be taken off the skirts or the edges of the earth by the dawn and by the morning of the day. This is really cool as I was thinking about this week. Every morning at the sunrise, we should be reminded of God's promise of justice. All of this is a vivid, poetic way of saying that every time the sun rises, it's reassurance that darkness will not last forever. There will come a day, as it says in Revelation 21 that we read earlier, when the sea in the symbolic sense of evil will be no more. It might be part of creation now, but it has a place in God's purposes now, but it's a limited one. Evil will not be with us forever. In our scripture reading, the wheat and the weeds may grow together for now, but the day will come when the weeds will be burned and the wheat will be gathered into God's barns, as Matthew 13 says. And so in suffering, we need to remember that it's temporary by nature. In suffering, we, it's easy for us to lose sense of time. Suffering has a way of wearing us down quickly. We need to remember God's promises that suffering has its limits and has a temporary timeline. But how can we be sure that the evil is not somehow lurking in the dark corners of the universe, independent and autonomous from the good purposes of God? Well, that's what verses 16 to 18 are what God deals with. The place of the dead are known and controlled by God. And so God's asking Job, have you been down there before, Job? Because if you have, then you've seen the gates of death and the gates of deep darkness, he describes in verse 17. The, 
the place of the dead is the deepest and the worst extremity, extremity in creation. It's certainly outside the area of Job's knowledge and therefore is beyond his reign of control. But it does not lie outside of God's area of perfect knowledge and entire control. And so if it is true that even the place of the dead is controlled by God, well, then we can be certain that there is no shadow or nook or dark corner of the universe, visible or invisible, that lies outside of God's knowledge or control. And unlike Job, we know of one man, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, who has been to and been through the gates of hell. He has gone deep into the place of the dead and he has returned victorious. And so because of Jesus, this place of terror, this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth need to terrify the Christian no longer. Because of Jesus, death has lost its power and lost its sting. Jesus has defeated death by being raised from the dead for us. And so when you're suffering, Christian, remember God's sovereign control over even the gates of death and that Jesus has conquered death and all in Christ have been freed from the penalty of death. God has power over the deepest of deeps and the highest of heights. And so God then points out his control and direction over even light itself. Even when we look at water, we should think of God's sovereignty. He says, according to verses 22 through 27, snow and hail are God's waters for destruction and trouble. And then rain is God's water for giving life. The same element by the same creator with such different consequences. God is over all of it and trustworthy in it. That's what God is trying to say. Does Job have the authority to call up the clouds to deliver life-giving rain? <laughs> Certainly not. No human is able to command life-giving water. How incredible. In light of God's speech to Job, is Jesus' ability. You guys remember that part when he's on the boat with his disciples in the sea and the storm is raging and these fishermen who are used to being on the sea, they're terrified because they're afraid that they're gonna drown because the boat is filling with water and Jesus is asleep in the, in the back and he wakes up and what does he do? He commands authority over even the waters and the sea. How incredible in light of God's speech to Job is Jesus' ability to calm the seas. Only God has control over that. Only God has control even over the stars. He says in chapter 38, verses 31 through 38, the skies teach us about the wonderful counsel and the wisdom of God in his governing of the universe. Everything is under God's good sovereignty, which means that God's sovereignty brings us hope. We, like Job, must think deeply about how the sovereignty of God extends to his sovereignty even over evil. We must reject false ideas that evil is as equally powerful as God. 
We must reject the idea that evil is somehow autonomous from God. And we must find rest for our heads on the pillow of God's sovereignty. It is the sweetest of beds and the softest of pillows when we put our heads on at night. Even in the darkest of times, we know that there is coming a day when every evil will be vanquished and the goodness of God will be vindicated. And so we have the brightest of hopes because everything is under God's sovereign hand. God's power reveals a need for us to be humble. So we should trust God's sovereignty in trials. Let's look at chapter 39 together, or almost 39. We're going to start in, in verse 38, or 39 of, of, verse, of chapter 38. And that's really where the second part of God's speech and responses to Job. Right, The first half was about the foundations of the earth and the skies, and the second half highlights God's wisdom that's revealed in the animals and the birds. And so the animals that are described here, they're not domesticated farm animals. They're not found on Job's farm or Old MacDonald's farm. They're not tame. They are outside of humanity's control, but clearly under God's sovereign control. It's here where the depth of God's sovereign wisdom is revealed. Okay, so picture with me a National Geographic TV episode, okay? First, the first shot we get is, is a warm and cuddly shot of these lion cubs, right? They look sweet and soft and beautiful, almost like you want to take them home and cuddle with them in your bed. But these little lion cubs are hungry, and if they're not fed soon, they're going to die. The next TV scene are of these young ravens calling for food, also hungry. And if they don't eat soon, well, they too will die. And so our hearts go out to these little defenseless creatures. But then we see Mama Lion lying in wait, stalking her prey in the tall grass. The gazelle doesn't know what's coming and doesn't see the lioness slowly approaching. And then with unbeatable speed, she tears apart the gazelle and there's blood and flesh flying everywhere. And the final shot shows the lion cub satisfied with plenty of meat and even the vultures and the ravens feed on the abundant leftovers. Well, that's actually the picture of Job 38. In verse 39, it is God who hunts the prey for the lion, who satisfies the appetite of the lion and comes and provides the young ravens the food that they need to live. But that's not unique to Job. We see that in the Psalms also. Psalm 147 says, He gives to the beasts their food into the young ravens that cry. Or Psalm 104 says, The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. See, feeding lions and ravens are under the power and sovereign control of God. God is also the one who brings the time of birth and life in chapter 39 verses 1 to 4, in, and he highlights the mountain goats. God doesn't only know when the mountain goats give birth, but with personal caring oversight, God provides for them. These shy, elusive creatures of the mountains are objects of God's tender care. 
their lives are in God's caring oversight, even the timing of their births. For example, every human mother knows the waiting and hoping as the baby grows inside the mother. Certainly there's pains in the pregnancy and and labor, but in the end, there's life and joy. Well, this is true for mountain goats. Well, then how much more is it true for people who are struggling in their suffering as believers? There may be trials, there may be labor involved, but at the end, there is life and joy. It is the rhythms of life which controls birth cycles of shy creatures and also operates the same way for us. Therefore, we must wait and be patient for God's good timing. Then God gives the example of the wild donkey in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 39. This wild donkey has a strange, wild, fast, unusual freedom. And yet it is this freedom that is a gift from God. It is God who has let the wild donkey donkey go free. And what, what God is saying here is that there isn't one inch in this strange wilderness that lives outside of the wisdom and sovereignty of God. In verses 9 to 12, God is saying that to Job, there's wild stuff out there beyond your farm, and some of it's pretty dangerous. And it takes wisdom and counsel wider and deeper than what Job has to manage this world. That wisdom belongs with God alone. Job should bow humbly before God. The mountain goats are under God's sovereign personal care. The wild donkey shows God's control over all wilderness, and even the foolish in nature are in God's sovereign control. And so in verses 13 to 18, God says, look at the ostrich. The ostrich bird is a picture of a foolish wonder in the wild. Uh, It has wings, but it can't fly. It has the reputation of leaving her eggs vulnerable and defenseless on the ground. It says that in verse 14. She's a stupid creature, it says in verse 17. And yet God has sovereign control over even this creature. In fact, she can't fly, but can run so fast that even a horse and and its rider cannot keep up with the ostrich, it says in verse 18. In the universe, there are strange paradoxes. And if there's a strange paradox with the ostrich, how much more may there be stranger paradoxical matters involving us in the world? Then God gives the example of the war horse in verses 19 to 25. This wild war horse is terrifying, and yet even this terrifying war horse has a master. God is the one to whom the war horse shows its strength, and it must one day give an account. God is sovereign over all of the warlike acts. The war horse doesn't give an account to Job. Job and we must bow and entrust ourselves to the only one who sovereignly rules over every inch of the universe. And so finally then to display God's perfect sovereignty in verses 26 through 30, God highlights the predator and prey in the wild. God doesn't just permit predators to kill their prey. He commands them to do it. Verses 27 to 30 are are shocking. 
It's a picture of these young eagles around a dead body with, with blood dripping off their beaks. And all of this is at God's good and sovereign command. Nothing is outside of God's control. Even Job's suffering and even our trials. Jesus brings it home for us in Luke 12 when he says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? God is putting all of these wild animals on display to say, Job, I am having personal care over all of them, and you, Job, are way more important than these things. So Christian, don't doubt God's care for you. Things far beyond Job are under God's provisional care and control. Uh, they're amazing things, but they are not even as close to the value of Job. And if God so much clothes the field and feeds the birds, things that aren't nearly as important, certainly God's care and control over, God's, uh, over Job's life isn't lost on Job. So brothers and sisters, it's easy to think that if God is in control, he just doesn't care, or that God just isn't in control. But both would be wrong. Trust in God's sovereignty over all things should bring humbleness and trust and confidence and rest and boldness to continue to live for the kingdom of God. God's sovereignty should bring calmness when everything else feels like life is exploding. So Christian, don't doubt God's care for you. Remember his sovereignty. Remember Jesus' redemption that displays God's love for you. God's power reveals a need for us to be humble. So we need to trust God's sovereignty in trials. Let's look at Job chapter 40, at Job's humble response. God has been saying in summary, I have made no mistake. I know exactly what I'm doing in your life and every detail of the control of the world. Look around and see. I am the creator and sustainer of all life. I am in control of the world and therefore you can trust me with your life and even with your unanswered questions. God's like the genie in Aladdin who says, you ain't never had a friend like me. Job is in no position to argue with God. Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer, God says in verse 1 of chapter 40. So think of someone who, no matter the plans and no matter the context, this person often just sees problems in the plans, but has nothing productive to add to make something better. They see issues in others, but can't bring aid to be helpful. Well, that person is quickly no longer asked their opinion here on earth. Imagine how much more unhelpful it is to do that with God. Job finds fault with the way that God runs the world. Job is a man who has spoken beyond himself and implies that he could give some useful tips to help God run the world better. So God calls him to give an account. And Job's response 
in verses 3 and 4 and 5 are so good for us. He says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job recognizes that he is too small to understand all that God is doing. Job says two things. He admits that he's smaller than God, so Job's response is humbleness. And then Job declares that he will make no further declarations. He's putting his hand over his mouth. He would stitch his lips if he could, uh, recognizing how wrong that he was. Brothers and sisters, that should create humble hearts in us also. If our hearts aren't humbled like Job's, right? Because Job is not much like us. Job was a man who was even in the midst of difficult trials. When he's encouraged to curse God and die, he doesn't. And he continues to look to God for answers. We so quickly abandon God in our trials. And yet Job has his heart humbled. And so if our hearts aren't humbled like Job's, then I think we've missed God's point this morning. When we look at all that God reigns over as king, and when we look at how little control we actually have, we cannot give God pointers, we cannot correct God's sovereign plans, nor should we think that God has gotten anything wrong. The same God who reigns over all also has made a covenant with us in Christ. Our sovereign Lord, who reigns over the universe, also sent Jesus to die in our place to redeem our proud hearts by taking the penalty for our pride and rebellion. And so God has redemptive care for us that is like honey on our lips. And he has control over the universe that brings rest to tired people. And so if you are someone who has spoken beyond what you understand, if you are someone who has doubted God's goodness in your life, if you are someone who is tired of all that is going on in your life, God says, come to me and find hope and rest for your soul. He has control over the universe that brings rest for tired people. And so we too should take Job's point and cover our mouths instead of complain to God and we should instead exercise trust in God's sovereignty and wisdom. How might we exercise humbleness towards God when we open his word and, he, and we ask him to speak to us? When God speaks to Job, it creates humbleness and Job ultimately trusts God in all of his plans. How might that be the same for us as we open God's word and God is speaking to us? How ought that to humble our hearts and to trust in God's good plans? How might we trust God's sovereign reign in our lives this week that shows that we don't doubt God but find rest in his control? God's power reveals a need for us to be humble. 
And so we need to trust God's sovereignty in our trials. We cannot give God pointers in his sovereign reign. We cannot correct God's plans. We can trust him though and we can submit to him, and we can find rest knowing that the God who loves us enough to send his son to die in our place also is the same God who controls all things. And so when we find ourselves pushed to the limits, beyond what we think we can handle, stressed to the point to where we, we are just deer in the headlights, when we find ourselves in situations far beyond anything that we could ever control, well, that's when we are to find rest that God does control all of it and gives us hope because he's made a covenant with us in Christ. Let God's power remind us to trust him, to trust his sovereignty in every circumstance. Let's pray.